Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. Mike Spring is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. And I'm Phil Edwards. Wow. Thanks for saying that, Phil. And you know what the best saying what? Thing, the best part about that is? It has nothing to do with any of our movies tonight. I know you're just saying that out of the goodness saying of your what? heart. I what are you talking about? Oh, uh, I listened to like black out for a second. Yeah. I? No, that's fine. That's fine. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about at all. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. Well, what did you say? I just said I'm Mike Spring. Mike Spring is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. But what did you say? <laughs> uh, I was just saying welcome to the show. Oh, good. Yeah, well, let's get on with it then, Mike. Come on, yeah, let's, let's, let's do that. Phil, why don't you tell people what we'll be talking about in this episode? Uh, yeah, we're going to be going after the ending of uh, Bull Durham mm-hmm. and the Manchurian Candidate. Hmm. Yeah, the Manchurian Candidate. Hmm. Also doing our top 10 films of 1998. Very good. And just because I like hearing it, one more time, I'm Mike Spring. Mike Spring is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. That is, that's a beautiful thing. What's going on? It's weird, that email you sent me early on, Mike. It, uh, <laughs> it had like a weird spinning pattern on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It's just something I thought... Yeah, it's I, just, I can't remember. I can't cool remember what else it did. Something else, but uh, I've had a killer headache as well. Yeah, yeah. If you've, anyway. never, uh, if you've never seen the, the Manchurian Candidate, by the way, it involves brainwashing, is all I'm going to say. Well, I know, yeah. Well, why'd you mention that? We already know that, Mike. What's... <laughs> well, just for the, for the listeners to get them caught up. Ah, uh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. But speaking of Manchurian Candidate, why don't we jump into the episode and uh, kick things off with... The Manchurian Candidate. Yes, let's do that. Okay, so it's uh, made in 1962 uh, and directed by John Frankenheimer and stars Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey, Janet Leigh and Angela Lansbury, amongst many others. Also proving that Angela Lansbury has never been young. Yes, that's very true. Although there's a little bit of the trivia, which we'll come to after the uh, we've done the endings. But uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, it's uh, So in the Korean... In the Korean War, where a U.S. platoon is captured by Soviets and taken to Manchuria in communist China. Three days later, all but two of the soldiers return to U.S. lines. And Staff Sergeant Raymond Shaw, played by Lawrence Harvey, is said to have saved their lives in combat. Captain Bennett Marco, uh, played by Frank Sinatra, recommends that Shaw gets the Medal of Honor and everything's cool. Shaw returns to the U.S. with a, and gets a hero's welcome. And his mother, Eleanor Iceland, uh, Angela Lansby plays her, uses that to aid her husband's political career because her husband is a senator. Uh, when asked to describe Shaw, Marco and the other soldiers automatically respond with the same phrase, saying he's wonderful, brilliant, and things. I can't remember the actual full phrase. Yeah, I haven't heard it. I haven't heard it in a long time, but I, I, uh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. In the following years, Marco, who's now major, has a recurring nightmare where a hypnotized Shaw kills the two missing soldiers. Another soldier from the platoon has the same nightmares. Turns out that Shaw has been brainwashed by Russian and Chinese communists to be a sleep agent. He is triggered by seeing the Queen of Hearts playing card and his handler is his own mother, Eleanor. She gets Shaw to kill a senator and his daughter, Jocelyn, who Shaw was in love with. But Shaw has no memory of this and is horrified to learn that his true love is dead. Uh, Marco works out that the playing card is the trigger and Eleanor primes her son to kill their own party's presidential nominee at a convention so that her husband will win and seek emergency powers that will make martial law seem like anarchy. Uh, Shaw takes up sniper position as Marco races to stop him. However, Shaw kills his own mother and her husband. Marco arrives and Shaw tells him 
that he couldn't let anyone stop his plan before he shoots himself. And that's the Manchurian candidate. It is indeed. I wish I could remember what that what that phrase that they all said about about Shaw was, but uh Yeah, I know it's uh, but I can't it's not worth looking but um up. I'm Mike Spring. Mike Spring is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. Yeah, it's just a shame we can't we can't remember that. But yeah. that's okay. It's not that important. It's so. something about how Raymond Shaw is, is really good. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, it'll yeah. it'll come to me, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so that's what happens in the film. What do you think of the film, Mike? Uh, you know, I, I really like this film, actually. I, I will admit it is one I first watched uh, when I was pretty young. Yeah, yeah. And it was one of the, right when I was getting into the classic Hollywood movies. And so, of course, this whole sort of conspiracy theory brainwashing was really exciting for me. Uh, and I actually just rewatched it a couple of weeks ago. There's a really nice Criterion Collection disc uh, of it. And um, I think it holds up really well. It's a, It bogs down just a little in the middle. It could be maybe 10, 20 minutes shorter, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think every movie could be 10 or 20 minutes shorter um but it's really great i mean uh frank sinatra's terrific in it angela lansbury's terrific in it the ending is fantastic yeah powerful film yeah yeah it's a really powerful film and it's just a good like cold war thriller uh that it does some really neat stuff there's a cool scene where they're sort of revealing the brainwashing for the first time and all the soldiers think they're at like this meeting for like old women like learning how to plant flowers and then the camera sort of circles around and as it comes back around you see they're surrounded by like Russian and Chinese soldiers and stuff so it's it's, it's a cool flick it's got some really neat some really neat moments in it yeah good stuff yeah I, I like the film as well I just say Sinatra had a great performance by him you never you never you, you always forget how good of an actor Sinatra was because yeah. he, he was in some real dramatic movies yep. and I mean this is one of them he plays a major role in it no pun intended yeah yeah he's a major <laughs> but uh, yeah <laughs> Oh, shit, meant that. <laughs> but yeah, and it's uh, some some good visuals as well. Yeah, the whole brainwashing technique you see at various times. Uh, it's just cameras going around them, as you say, and it's it, it's all very well done. You're sort of left not sure what's going on in places as well, what's real and what isn't. It's uh, it's a very well-made film. Uh, pity the the remake didn't cut, sort of match up to it, even though it follows the same basic plot. I mean, it, I, I quite enjoyed the remake, but it was it was just more like a popcorn kind of film. Yeah, I, you know... Yeah. I really didn't like the remake, to be honest with you. And I, I get yeah. what you're saying as it, as it being a popcorn film, but to me, it it, it just it fails on some level to where even yeah, it was though, trying too hard, I think. Yeah, it was trying to be too yeah. serious and too self-important. Something I don't know. It just didn't really work for me. I watched it also not that long ago, and I just just didn't like it that much. It's un, it's unfortunate because it has a great cast, but it doesn't uh, doesn't quite work. Yeah. But well, if you've seen only the remake and not the original. Our ending should still make sense to you because, again, all the characters are the same yeah. and the events are the same. So if in your head you're picturing Denzel Washington instead of Frank Sinatra, that's perfectly okay. And if you're picturing Meryl Streep instead of Angela Lansbury, perfectly okay because it'll still work. Well, go, try and track down a copy of the original film if you haven't seen it. It's well worth watching. Indeed. Okay, then, Mike, that's what happens in the in the film, though. But what, uh, what happens in your day after the ending? Okay, well... A few months after the events at the political convention, Major Marco and Jeannie get married at a small ceremony. That's his uh, girlfriend. I don't know if she came up too much in your uh, Oh, synopsis. yes, I didn't mention her. She wasn't yeah. really that essential to the, yeah. to the story, but they get married and uh, at a small ceremony. And life settles into normal rhythms for a while, but the couple have to constantly move as Marco gets reassigned or restationed as the army is wont to do. Major Marco is drafted into army intelligence when he is recognized for the fact that he uncovered the brainwashing plot nearly single-handedly, and he begins working on some of the most top-secret national security issues that face America. He's only been on the job for about six months when a disturbing report comes across his desk. A Russian diplomat who is sympathetic to the U.S. and was working covertly with U.S. agents to try and unify the U.S. and the USSR had been shot and killed in a park in Moscow. 
Marco's agents look into it, but there's no evidence to help them discover the identity of the killer. It's as if the man was killed by a ghost. Hmm. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Hmm. <laughs> now, you'll recall, Phil, I told you uh, middle of the week uh, last week uh, after we decided to do this movie that I was afraid that my idea for my after the ending might be something that you would come up with also. Yes, you did. Uh, because I felt like it was cool but kind of obvious. We'll see if that shakes loose or not. So, uh, But fair warning to listeners, if these end up being similar, uh, you'll know that there there was some concern about that ahead of time. But we don't share our endings, so... Yeah, we, we not, neither of us know what's doing. But Mike, if uh, when you're doing the edits, could you just replay what you just said for my my uh, day after? Exactly the same. I've got it down word for word. Everything, <laughs> same, same punctuation, everything. It's like we were brainwashed. God damn them. <laughs> uh, so, so with all that said, Phil, why don't you go ahead and take us through your day after? Okay, yes, but Bartholomew Shaw removed the VR headset. He'd heard the tales of his ancestor, but to actually witness what he had done still shook him. How are you feeling? asked the tech as he took the headset from Shaw. Looks like there was a slight glitch near the end. Shaw hadn't noticed anything. He thanked the tech and headed out into the city. It had been a hundred years since Raymond Shaw died. He was hailed as a hero by the Ministry of Peace, and after the US had won the Korean War, there had been no major conflict since then. The network that linked every human on the planet played the latest news directly into Shaw's brain. There was a flicker, and then a blurred figure seemed to push through the picture in his head. It seemed to be saying something. At first it was garbled, then the words came clear. This is wrong. It's all a lie. That's my day after. Wow. All right, so A, very cool. B, Thank you very much. glad I went through and explained all that about how similar our endings might be, and then they're <laughs> completely different in every possible yes, way. Yes, so yes. I'm glad to hear that, though. That works out That works out better. That's good. <laughs> yes, I was, I was thinking, because when I was, you, you'd already mentioned, you know, there's a chance it could be something similar, and I, I started writing one, and I went, oh, I don't know. Then I started writing this one, I was going, but what if this is the one? <laughs> right. What if he's done I know. this? I know, I shouldn't have said anything, because then you start second-guessing <laughs> everything, but that's all right. It worked out for the best. Cool, yeah. Okay, well, what's going on then with uh, your immediate aftermath? All right, well, over the next few years, the ghost, as Marco comes to know him, becomes a major force in geopolitical events. Whenever someone arises who might threaten the status quo of the world, the ghost shows up and assassinates them. The only evidence the ghost leaves behind is the bullet wound in the victim. There's never any actual evidence to prove he was even there, but Marco knows in his gut that it's the same person responsible for all of the killings. Then, early in December in 1963, Marco is in Dallas, Texas to protect President John F. Kennedy, who's visiting the state. Marco has a feeling that Kennedy will be in the ghost's sights before long, as he's making waves on the global political scene that Marco suspects some governments won't like. Despite all his precautions, a bullet takes the life of the president, but this time Marco gets a break when an agent spots a reflection on an upper floor of a nearby book depository. Marco rushes to the building and runs up the stairs, making his way to the roof. As he bursts through the door on the roof, he sees a man about to slide down a grappling wire to an adjacent building. Freeze, Marco yells, and Marco is shocked to see a familiar face looking back at him. It's the face of Raymond Shaw. Ooh. <laughs> Which okay. I know you okay. probably saw that coming, but still, I thought I'd have a little fun with it. Well, I was thinking it could it could be him, but I wasn't sure it could be somebody else. Uh, but uh, no, very good. I like it. All right. Nice build up. Yes, thank you. And more to come. Meanwhile, though, let's hear what's happening in your uh, futuristic immediate aftermath. Okay. The figure in the network kept appearing and gained more detail each time. Eventually, it took the form of Major Marco and even managed to explain to Shaw what was happening. The virtual Marco was part of the network that had gained sentience, and for some reason, Marco had become its default personality. It had discovered that the world government had got into power using the Manchurian brainwashing techniques, 
The network was an extension of that and it kept the population docile and easy to control. Virtual Marco had discovered uh, millions had been killed over the years. It was ethnic cleansing on a truly horrific scale. Anyone who spoke out about the world government was killed along with their family. Virtual Marco explained how he could block the network's control algorithm from Shaw's head. Shaw realised he was awake surrounded by millions of brainwashed citizens. The sense of responsibility was overwhelming. That's my immediate aftermath. Oh, chilling. Mm. I like it. So we got some. Uh, I like the fact that in the that like the, the the sort of AI sentience of the future is Frank Sinatra. There's something that I find reassuring about that. I know. I just think it'd be kind of cool. You got this VR kind of thing. You know, this this whole matrix kind of. It's not real, but then there's Frank Sinatra in the middle right. going, "Hey kid, right. come on, right. let's do it." So, and he's got such a great voice, you know. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's very cool. I can't do a, a Frank Sinatra impression. No, that's never stopped me before. Okay then, but uh, what's going on with your long term now that Shaw's revealed to be the ghost? All right, well, Marco is stunned. Shaw, he stammers. Shaw looks at Marco with a quizzical expression on his face. I don't know anyone named Shaw, he says. Then who are you, Marco asks. They call me the Winter Soldier. Ooh, ooh. oh, I like that. <laughs> thank you, thank oh, you. Oh, I didn't expect that. Uh, Very good. Then without another word, Shaw pulls out a gun and empties a clip at Major Marco, who manages to dive to cover and barely avoid a hail of bullets. As the Winter Soldier reloads, Shaw reaches into his wallet and pulls out a Queen of Diamonds playing card. He'd carried it with him since the events with Shaw and didn't even know why. Now he was just glad he'd held on to it. Just as the Winter Soldier gets his bearings, Marco thrusts the card up into view. He takes a deep breath, then stands up, half expecting to be struck down by gunfire. But the shots never come. He looks at Shaw, who is in sort of a fugue state. How the hell is this possible, Bennett asks. I saw you die. Shaw, speaking in a monotone and clearly struggling, says, They were able to rebuild me. Goddamn Russians, Marco mutters. Shaw finally focuses on Marco's face. Not the Russians, he says. The men I work for answer directly to the President of the United States. Marco stares at Shaw in shock for a moment, then everything clicks into place. He realizes that while he'd always pegged the communists for the assassinations Shaw executed, he could see now how they were subtly changing the power base to ensure that America remained the major world power. Marco turns to Shaw and says, We've got one more mission, old friend. It's time to put a stop to this for good. And that's the end. Oh, very nice. Thank you. Thank you. I like that. Appreciate it. And that fit, that, it does fit in perfectly well. Yeah, I thought it'd be cool. Like, that was the kind of the logical next step. Like, we know they brainwashed the, the Winter Soldier, so why not, yeah, yeah. you know, start the rebuilding process? This this He could be the next. In, even though, he, you know, even though he turned the gun on his head, why can't they fix that, too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see now why you, you thought that we could uh, have the similar kind of ending. But the winter, for some reason, the Winter Soldier hadn't even entered my mind. Right. But I thought there was a chance that maybe with all yeah. the Marvel stuff lately and everything, too, you, yeah, you, might, yeah, yeah. you might latch on to that idea also. So, and that's kind of what nah. I was like. Oh, I hope Phil doesn't turn him into the. No, that soldier. was good. I really, I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Good. Thank you. All right. Well, I want to hear about the uh, the fate of the future, Phil. So give us your long term. Okay. Over the following months, Shaw and Virtual Marco had been building a resistance movement on two fronts. Marco in the virtual world was discovering more information and wiping their tracks. As he gained more power, he could free the minds of more humans. Shaw was organizing cells of resistance members. They kept trying to locate the leaders of the government, but they kept missing them. Things were going too slow. They realized they needed to destroy the network and free the minds of everyone before showing them the truth. A mission was planned, and with a few casualties, Shaw and Virtual Marco managed to destroy the network and free humanity. There would be a period of rebuilding, but those in power could finally be brought to justice. And that's my long term. Very nice. I like it. But there's a post-credit sequence as well. Oh, all right. Well, let's hear it. So it's really long because uh, it's all like the VR thing. There's a really long credit sequence because of all the digital artists and things like that. Right, right. I got you. Yeah, so it's going on and on. You just finish your popcorn and somebody's going, is there, any, is there a post-credit scene? 
and you go and yes, yes there is. And that's when it comes up. The two technicians watched the readout from Shaw's test. Looks like you passed the simulation and the commands have bedded in nicely, said one of them. A man stepped from the shadows behind them. Excellent, he said. He can finally begin the mission of locating the resistance and destroying those who want to bring down the network. Fate of Black. Oh, oh it's like a, it's not a mind trip. It's like a, it's like a brainwash within a brainwash within a brainwash. Yeah, yeah it's uh, how many? That's like twelve brainwashes now. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that's what, Phil. Brainwash. I'll tell you what. I'm Mike Spring, and I didn't see that coming. Mike Spring is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. I like. I, tell, I tell me what, Mike. <laughs> oh, not nothing, Phil. Never mind. Never mind. Forget I said anything. Okay. Okay. Um. Oh, that was cool. All right. Very neat. Thank you. I like it. Yeah. Both. I I, I liked your end and very couple of good endings there, I think. Well, Phil, I understand you're the man trivia candidate, so why don't you lay some trivia on us? Very good. I like that one. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, John Frankenheimer, the director, he always liked the freshness of a first take. And Frank Sinatra always said he did his best work on a first take. So most of Sinatra's main scenes in the film were the first take huh. for that scene. Well, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, not bad at all. Uh, the budget was $2,200,000. Sinatra got paid $1 million. Jeez. Yeah, Lawrence Harvey, who played Shaw, got $200,000, which left $1 million for everything else. That's crazy. And you mentioned Angela Lansby was always old. She was 36 at the time of filming this. She looks about 55. Yeah, she was only three years older than Lawrence Harvey, who played her son. That's crazy. I swear she came out of the womb looking like a fifty-five-year-old woman. Yeah, no, you know what I mean. This, yeah, yeah. Like even as a, even strange. as a toddler, she she looked like Mrs. Potts. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> uh, I love Angela Lansbury. No disrespect intended. Uh, I know that she was actually when she was when she was young, she was quite beautiful. But it is funny that no, like, I know I know what you mean. You hear you're going, oh, Angela Lansbury, this is, and it's from nineteen sixty-two, so she must be young. And then she comes on screen, and you're like, oh, she's still kind of old. I know. I think the fact she did murder, she wrote. Yeah. And just went on for so long. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but she was always. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Okay, but uh, Joe Adams, who played an army psychiatrist in the film, was the first black actor cast in a part that wasn't specified as a black character. Oh wow, that's cool. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And the film itself, well, the shooting of the film was completed in thirty-nine days. Very good. And that's. Uh, Manchurian candidate. Excellent. All right. Well, then let's move on to one of the most beloved baseball comedies of all time, the one and the only Bull Durham. Yes, it's uh, well, it's it's not one of my favorite baseball comedies, but I haven't seen it in a while. But I enjoy I enjoy it. But it's it's never quite when I've seen it, it's never quite as good as my memory of it. I know what you mean. I I, yeah. I actually don't disagree with you. You know, this is one of those films that for me was the very definition of having seen it in bits and pieces over the years. I've probably yeah. saw about three quarters of the movie, but it wasn't until probably last year sometime when I actually sat down and watched the entire film start to finish. Um, and I liked it. I I enjoyed it. It's a good film, but it's not it's not as great as sort of the kind of memory of it. I mean, people always are like, oh, Bull yeah, Durham, it's yeah. great, but I don't know that it's it's the greatest film. It's fun. It's a good film, but it's not one of my favorites, you know? Yeah. I think it's very much sort of of its time. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. In the 80s, it sort of has that thing. But I love the cast. Oh, for sure. I like, I like all the cast. Yep. And I mean, there are some good uh, funny moments, some good dramatic moments, but it's, uh, yeah, as you say, it's one of those ones where I think your memory of it is better than when you actually see it. Right, right. But I know there's loads of people out there love the film. Yeah, right? yeah. Nothing, and there's nothing yeah. against it. It's a good film. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so that's it's uh, it's been a while since we've done a baseball film, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it has. But at least it's baseball season, so we didn't do it like the middle of you know November. Or yeah, something. yeah, yeah. Okay, then. So do you want to run us through what happens in the film? Sure. So Bull Durham, nineteen eighty eight, directed by Ron Shelton, starring Kevin Costner, Susan Sarandon, and Tim Robbins, and lots of other famous, familiar faces. 
Uh, baseball player Crash Davis, played by Kevin Costner, is sent to the minor league Durham Bulls team in North Carolina to coach an upcoming pitcher named Ebby Nuke Lelouch, played by Tim Robbins. They don't exactly get along. Enter Annie, a baseball fan and groupie who picks one player every year to be her pet project, uh, meaning she coaches them spiritually and sexually. Annie, that's Susan Sarandon, uh, and Crash have some friction, and Annie takes in Ebby, or Nuke, and she and Crash try to coach him in their own ways. Nuke eventually gets called up to the major league, and Annie ends their relationship. The Bulls release Crash. Crash then spends a hot and heavy week with Annie as they consummate their sexual tension and romantic attraction. But Crash then leaves to try and land on another team. He joins the Asheville Tourists and breaks the minor league record for career home runs. We see Nuke being interviewed by the press as a major leaguer, reheating actual advice that Crash gave him uh, and clearly not having learned a lot. Uh, Finally, Crash retires as a player and returns to Durham and to Annie. Crash tells Annie he's thinking about becoming a manager for a minor league team, and the film ends with Annie and Crash dancing in her candlelit living room. And that's Bull Durham. Excellent, yeah. You summed it up nicely. Thank you, thank you. All right, so that's the that's the synopsis, Phil. Why don't you take us through your day after? Okay, Annie and Crash end up moving to a, a small town where Crash becomes manager of the minor league team. Crash realizes that Annie's experience and love of baseball makes her a perfect talent scout. Annie loves the idea, so she takes the job. Crash puts heads with some of the, the team, but they soon realize he knows what he's talking about and his tough love of leadership helps bring the team together. Meanwhile, Nuke is extremely successful in the major leagues. He beats the world record for fastest pitch ever on his third major league match. And that's my day after. Very good. So what's happening with your day after? All right. Well, as the offseason progresses, Crash sets up a number of interviews at major league teams across North Carolina. He doesn't want to relocate out of the state, but he knows he may have to travel a bit to get a job. With a half dozen interviews lined up, Crash and Annie make a road trip vacation out of it, spending a day or two on the road and then stopping in town for an interview. They hit up Asheville, Charlotte, Raleigh, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, and Fayetteville. As they travel, Annie and Crash's romance deepens as they learn more about each other, and they realize there's more between them than just sexual attraction. After a few weeks on the road, they return home, and there's a message on the answering machine. It's the owner of the Greensboro Hornets. They want Crash as their manager. And that's my day after. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. A little trivia fact. When I was a kid, uh, until I was six, I lived in Greensboro, North Carolina, and that was the minor league team uh, that I used to go see play, the the Greensboro Hornets. Excellent. And a small little minor fact as well, because I'm not American, uh, that's why I haven't got any names of any baseball teams (laughs) or locations mentioned in my ending. I I could only pull that off because I knew them. Yes. Yes. Uh, when I was little and I used to go see the Greensboro Hornets, uh, one of the players I used to watch was Don Mattingly. Now, I don't know a lot about baseball, but I know that he went on to become one of the most famous New York Yankees ever. So ah. that's a, a, a fairly big deal in terms of baseball. Kind of cool. That is very cool. I'm just waiting for them, the World Series to actually let you know teams from other countries take part. <laughs> yep, yep. You keep waiting, Phil. Yeah. All right. Well, meanwhile, Phil, tell us what's going on in your immediate aftermath. Okay. Annie and Crash get married a year later. It's a small service, but it's a lovely day. Crash's team is having their best season ever, and Annie has brought in a few new players who all prove to be excellent members of the team. Annie also begins writing her philosophy on baseball. Crash reads some of it and is blown away by how well it works. He convinces Annie to to contact a few publishers, so she does. Nuke is still a success, but he is suffering from a recurring shoulder injury that puts him out for the rest of the season. 
And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. I like how you kept Nuke in your ending. I uh, I, I didn't come up with anything good for him other than him just still being a jackass. Yeah, that's pretty much he is, isn't it? But I just felt, I felt like I had to have a little bit you of You know, him. I get it. I, I actually wrote him in my first draft, and I took him out because I had nowhere to go with him. So. Yeah, yeah, he's not a a very nice character. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what's going on with yours? All right, well, Crash's first season as the manager of the Greensboro Hornets is successful, going 97-45 and and earning a spot in the playoffs. A bad ninth inning costs them a chance at the pennant, but Crash feels optimistic that next season will be even better. During the offseason, Crash and Annie decide to travel again since they had so much fun last time they hit the road. This time they want to see more of the country, so they go and visit Crash's four brothers. Their first stop is at his brother Ray's farm in Iowa, where he just plowed his <laughs> cornfield to build a baseball field. <laughs> Could, I couldn't resist. I, I was trying to think how to get yeah. that answer, but I couldn't. I couldn't think. Yeah, they all—all they, all of him and his brothers all look a lot alike. People comment oh, okay. on it all the time. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. Um, then they go to Detroit to visit his brother Billy, who's just finished what might be his last season as a pitcher for the Tigers. Then they visit Cleveland, Ohio, where his brother Sonny is the general manager for the Cleveland Browns, and he's just had a baby. (laughs) Then they finally return to North Carolina to see his brother Roy, who's playing on the U.S. Open golf tournament. (laughs) When they finally get home, Annie says to Crash, boy, you guys sure do love sports. (laughs) Crash smiles and says, huh, I never noticed that. (laughs) And uh, that's that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, I like that. Thank you. Thank you. For those of you who... uh, who uh, aren't, don't catch every reference, that is In Order, that is Field of Dreams, uh, For Love of the Game, Draft Day, and Tin Cup. I quite like Draft Day. I enjoyed that film. I thought it was pretty good. As a football yeah. fan, I enjoyed it. I also really like Tin Cup a lot. Uh, and I actually, I think we've talked about it. I have a real soft spot for For the Love of the Game. It's one of my wife and I's yeah, favorite yeah. movies to watch yeah. together. So uh, Kevin Costner in a sports film, I'm, I'm sold. Yeah, he has done quite a few. Yeah, I left out the uh, the running one he did, the track team one, McFarland USA. I didn't think that was. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought yeah. that might be too deep of a cut to, to, yeah, to throw yeah. in and expect people to catch it. don't think many people have seen that No, one. no. All right. So anyway, Phil, go ahead and give us your long term. Okay, then. A few years have passed by. Crash was approached by a major league team. Insert whatever one you want. Yeah, sure. Because I don't know. <laughs> I can think of, I know of a few, but, you know, I didn't want to get things totally wrong about the area and everything. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Crash was approached by a major league team, but he's asked to manage it. His success with the minor league team has made headlines across the country. He takes the job, and Annie moves with him and takes a job as a scout. She's been very successful picking a number of people who have gone on to glory. Her book, Zen and the Art of Baseball, is also a huge seller and has become re- required reading for many baseball teams. Nuke had a successful career, but ended up retiring as a player after five years due to his shoulder injury. He went off the rails for a while, uh, but hearing of this, Crash contacted Nuke and offered him a job as a coach. For a while, Nuke refused, but he eventually realized he was being stupid and took the job. Eventually he calmed down and Crash, Annie and Nuke led the team on to become legends. Oh, I like it. And that's my long I like, uh, I will say my favorite part of that was the idea of Annie writing of the baseball philosophy book, because I feel like A, not only is that a good idea, but B, that's very true to her character. And I think it captures because the thing about her is, you know, Susan Sarandon plays her as this total sex pot, but she also really knows her baseball. Yeah, that's I mean, that's one of her. She's a baseball groupie, I suppose. Right. She loves the game. She knows everything about it. Yeah. She's not just like a throwaway character, like a floozy. You know, there's more to her than that. So I I like that, that you found a niche for her. That was cool. Yeah, it's the same like, kind of context as Penny Lane in Almost Famous. Right, right. She finds she finds someone and then helps, becomes like their muse and helps lift them up to the next level. Exactly. Yeah. So well done, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, what's going on with your long term? All right, well, seven seasons later, Crash and Annie are as happy as can be. Crash's tenure with the Greensboro Hornets has been a huge success, with the team going to the playoffs four times and winning the pennant twice. About two years ago, Crash and Annie got married, and life has been peaceful and easy ever since. 
but now life is about to change. Crash and Annie had decided a few years ago that they wanted to start a family, but neither of them were exactly young, and they were unable to have a child. Not letting that stop them, they had started the adoption process about six months ago, and today was the day that their child was officially coming home. As Crash and Annie got into the car to go to the adoption agency, Crash looks at Annie and says, You ready for this? Hell no, Annie replies, and they both laugh. <laughs> After a minute, they look at each other, smile, and drive off to complete their family. Oh, very nice. Thank you. That's a good ending. Thanks. Thanks. I thought that yeah. seemed like, uh, I like them settling down, you know? Yeah, fits in with the characters as well. Right. Excellent. Thank you much. Okay, so that is Bull Durham. Phil, do you have any Bull Durham trivia? I'm not even going to try anything more. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. Kurt Russell, who played minor league baseball in the 1970s, helped uh, Ron Shelton develop the script. And he was originally going to play Crash, but it ended up going to Kevin Costner. Hmm, interesting. Kevin Costner was only three years older than Tim Robbins. At the time of filming, they were 33 and 30, respectively. And I think Susan Sarandon was 41 or 42. Right. Uh, Ron Shelton cast Tim Robbins over the objections of the studio. They wanted Anthony Michael Hall instead, but Shelton threatened to quit. Huh. And he got his way. Interesting. Uh, Orion Pictures gave Shelton a $9, a $9 million budget on an eight-week shooting schedule, and both Jeff Bridges and Don Johnson turned down the role of Crash. Huh. And that's Bull Durham. All right, very good. So those are our endings for Bull Durham and The Manchurian Candidate, and that means we're going to move on now to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein Phil and I take a year from the last century of Hollywood and share our top 10 favorite movies. So, Phil, climb into your famous time machine and tell us what life was like back in the year we're doing this week, which is... 1998. Yes, back then, 1998, uh, the UK Prime Minister was Tony Blair and the US President was Bill Clinton. Uh, the judge reports broke the news on Clinton's alleged affair with Monica Lewinsky. Well, apparently he was just, you know, looking for a cigar. Uh, the, 98, <laughs> the 1998 Winter Olympics were held in Nagano, Japan. Titanic became the first film to cross the $1 billion mark. NASA's Clementine probe orbiting the moon found water in polar craters which uh, NASA also felt that there was enough water there to help build a, a settlement at some point in the future. So far, obviously, that hasn't happened. Right. Or has it? Uh, in May of 1998, the first Euro coins were minted. As the final specifications were not finished, though, in 1998, they got melted down and minted again in 1999. Oh, wow. So a bit of a cock-up, but yeah. it turned out okay. Uh, the Galaxy 4 communication satellite failed, leaving 80 to 90% of the world's pages without service. Huh. So back, remember when pages were big things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. vaguely. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, there were lots of nuclear tests in India and Pakistan. Uh, it was all getting a bit uh, shaky with nuclear weapon tests and things there, but uh, luckily it all turned out okay. And Google Incorporated was founded in California, but with a name like Google, I can't really see that doing much. I know. It's, it, yeah, I mean, really. That's, yeah, Google. Who, who would use that? I'll right, Google it up and see what's... Uh, happened to them <laughs> we saw we also saw the births of ariel winter zachary gordon peyton list al fanning jaden smith and bindi Irwin. and sadly we saw the deaths of sonny bono uh, jack lord falco lord bridges frank sinatra phil hartman john derrick roy rogers alan shepherd gene autry akira kurosawa ted hughes bob kane and roddy mcdowell all right there you go 1998 yes what'd you think of 1998 phil uh, yeah, lots of films I liked. Yeah, yeah, one of those years where it's like I, yeah. I had no trouble putting together a top ten list. Yeah, yeah, I did it easy. Not, not too many that are like mega, mega favorites, but some, some good films. Yeah. The list definitely gets better as it goes. There's a marked difference yeah. between my like bottom two and top two, you know. Yeah, lots of films as well which didn't quite make it on the list, which I'd happily sit and watch whenever they're on TV. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. 
yeah, one of those where a few a few good, really good ones and lots of enjoyable ones to watch. Yeah, that about sums it up yeah. nicely. Yeah. All right, so Phil, go ahead and kick us off. What do you have at your number 10? Okay, my number 10 is a film which I've mentioned a few times on various episodes, but it is Fallen, starring Denzel Washington, uh, John Goodman, Elias Cotius, and lots of other people. But it's uh, all about an angel, or is it a demon or whatever, who, who passes from body to body and kills people and... We follow Denzel Washington's detective character, realizing this, and then trying to track down this 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 untouchable creature which can jump from body to body. Good pick, very good pick. I yeah, like I just I just lo- love the concept and the way it was done. There's a chase scene which always stands out where Denzel Washington is trying to get away from this thing, and all all that happens is one person touches another, and they touch another person, and basically Denzel Washington is just trying to keep ahead of all these people, putting their hands on each other's shoulder as this as the demon angel entity is transferring from one to the other. I just thought it was really well done and a good concept. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Good film. I like yeah. it. Okay, what's your number 10? All right, well, my number 10 is a tie, and it is uh, two sides of the teen movie spectrum uh, with Can't Hardly Wait and Urban Legend. Uh, Can't Hardly Wait is a great comedy. It's got um, Jennifer Love Hewitt and Seth Green and a bunch of other really uh, Jenna Elfman, a ton of famous faces and a lot of people you'd know now. Um, and just a, it's a it's a, a you know basically it's a movie about kind of a group, a couple different groups of kids all sort of meeting up at this party and they're you know they're intersecting in love lives and friendships and things like that and. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's a film. It's one of the teen films that I've always enjoyed. It's definitely got kind of a cult following. It wasn't a huge, huge hit like your American Pie or stuff, but um, I've always really liked it. And then Urban Legend, um, also with a lot of famous faces, Tara Reid and Joshua Jackson and a bunch of great people, is to me it's an underrated slasher flick. You know, it's it's one of those post-Scream movies. Yeah, yeah. So it's very much in the, the vein of like an I Know What You Did Last Summer, but they took a bunch of, you know, very familiar TV, young TV teen actor faces and threw them into a slasher. But I really like the the way they based the kills off of urban legends like, um, you know, the kind of the, the, the person hanging in the wilderness and the Coke and Pop Rocks and all that stuff and turned it into this slasher film that I, I think is a lot of fun. So um, two sides of the teen spectrum, like I said, but I enjoy both those movies. Some good picks. They didn't make my top 10, but no, they're both enjoyable movies. A nice choice. Uh, my number nine is Out of Sight, uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh. It's the one that stars George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. Uh, I just like that. I just uh, Steven Soderbergh's films don't always hit the mark for me, but I always like this one. Uh, there's great chemistry between uh, Lopez and Clooney. Very stylish, some cool scenes, rather funny as well in places. Uh, it's also got Michael Keaton in there, who's playing uh, an FBI agent who... Apparently is the same FBI agent he played in Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, which is a nice little bit of world building, unintentional world building, I think. Right, right. Uh, but uh, yeah, great cast. Uh, I think pretty much everyone in it is like a is a cracking actor, major player. Uh, but yeah, good comedy crime thriller. You know, it's funny as I was looking at the list of 1998 films, I I went through and I could I could spot every single film that I knew that was going to be on your list that wasn't going to be on mine. <laughs> and there's a handful of them, which I and I I know every single one of them. And this was the first one I was like, oh, for sure, this is going to be on your list. Uh, I never understood the hype over this movie, to be honest with you. It was a weird one where it wasn't didn't do good at the box office, but critics went went yeah, nuts yeah. over it. And any most anybody you know who's like really into movies and cinema um, really likes this movie. It's this you know cool film and blah blah blah. And I think it's the most boring film on the planet. I never understood <laughs> why people like it, and I, I think it was the start of my. Why do people think Steven Soderbergh is such a great director phase? Because I still yeah, don't understand yeah. it to this day. Um, so 
Not, I'm not trying to pick on your pick. I just never got this movie. No, no, because as, as I said, it's uh, it's only a few Steven Soderbergh films which actually seem to I, I seem to enjoy. Lots of them just I go, oh, what's why is why is this so right, popular? Right, yeah. So that one's but, uh, uh, that one didn't make my list, but yes, good choice. I had a feeling. Yeah. All right. Well, my number nine is uh, a fun, fun movie that probably wouldn't have made it on my list had I not watched it just a couple months ago. And it is Deep Rising starring Treat Williams, which is basically just a, a giant sea monster versus a cruise ship movie. And uh, Treat Williams is part of this. Well, he's sort of part of, sort of not part of this group of pirates. And they come to rob the ship, but they find it deserted. And there's this sea monster. And um you know, I remember seeing it when it came out, and I was like, yeah, that was fine. It was all right. I think I was more excited for it than what it delivered at the time. But I watched it recently, and for a 20-year-old, you know, kind of B-movie creature flick, yeah. I had so much fun with it. I have to say, I thought it held up really, really well. I mean, some of the special effects are a little dated, but they're still CGI, and they still look pretty cool in some scenes. But I just really like the the the, the film. I think, you know, Treat Williams is fun. Uh, Famke Jansen's in it, and she's great, too. Um, and it's just a fun creature flick, and I love those. So I I was surprised by how much I enjoyed rewatching this. So it made it onto my list uh, at number nine. Excellent, a good pick. Uh, my number eight is another film that won't be on your list. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a few of them. Yeah, this is uh, Rushmore by Wes Anderson. Oh, that was one. For, I knew it. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll just check them off as we go, Phil. Jason Schwartzman playing Max Fisher, who goes to the Rushmore Academy. It also stars Bill Murray and Olivia Williams, and it's sort of like a love triangle between Jason and Bill over Olivia Williams, but it's all... It's, I quite like it. It's just, it's, it's very Wes Anderson. Uh, where, uh, Max Fisher, the main character, you don't like him, but the way it's, the way it's done is you sort of, you can see where he's going from and it's just this battle of wills between him and Bill Murray's character. Uh, some very funny moments, some some uh, lovely uh, camera shots, the way it's all set up, the scene and everything. But uh, yeah, I always enjoy this film. Uh, lots of fun, even though you don't like lots of the characters, but I can understand why you don't like it, Mike. And we went after the ending of that back in episode number... 19. Number 19. Wow, a long time ago, number 19. I know, I know. It's one of those ones I thought we only did that, like, you know, about yeah. 10 yeah, episodes me too. ago. Yeah, um, Yeah, no, this is continuing with my series of directors I just don't get. Uh, Wes Anderson, this was the sort of the start of the downfall of Wes Anderson for me, because I really liked his first movie, Bottle Rocket, and then I pretty much hated everything else he ever made up until uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. But uh, this was one I just I just don't get it either. I really don't like that movie at all. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens with the rest of the list. So hold on a minute. Uh, let me just get – I'm sensing it's not going to be on your list. <laughs> nope, definitely not. Ah, I see. I can do it. I'm psychic. Yeah. <laughs> okay, then what's uh, what's next on yours? Okay, my number eight is Blade, uh, starring Wesley Snipes. So we've talked about this this movie a number of times on this show. It is sort of the yeah. the unofficial launch of the Marvel movie, uh, the juggernaut, if you will. You know, obviously it's not part of the cinematic universe like that started with Iron Man, but it really was kind of mm-hmm. the first Marvel movie that came out and was a hit. And 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 not only was it a hit, but it took a, a very much a B level character. And turned him into his own starring vehicle and made it work. And I think that deserves a lot of credit. But more than that, it's just a fun movie. I really like it. I like Wesley Snipes' Blade. He was great casting. I, I like the the world of the vampires they create. Uh, Steven Dorff is terrific as, as the villain. And it's a cool movie with cool visuals. And uh, it's a lot of fun. So there you go. An excellent choice. Uh, my number seven is a film that you've already mentioned. It's Deep Rising. Ah, very good. I have a feeling it might show up on your list. I know you like it. Yeah, I have much the same as you. It's it's just, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Treat Williams is always fun to watch. Uh, and I love the whole concept of them getting on this ship. It's huge, one of the biggest passenger liners. And they get on there and everybody's missing. Uh, and there's blood all over the place. And I, I always, I think I've mentioned that before. I always love those films where you're following these group of people who 
go somewhere and something, something bad's happened, but they're not sure what, and we're trying to find out as, along with them. And it's just, when things are revealed, it's just great. And Treat Williams and the rest of the crew involved, all, all lots of fun. And I love the ending of it. And we'll have to do an after the ending for one day. Oh, yeah, for sure. That one is rife yeah. with possibilities. Yes, definitely. Hey, that's my number seven. My number seven has also appeared on your list, uh, and it is Fallen with Denzel Washington Yay. and John Goodman. Uh, I, I, again, like you, it's just a really cool film. That sequence you mentioned is is perfect. What's interesting to me about this film is that it it wasn't a big hit, although it did make some money. It was kind of those those weird medium hits. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it hasn't even really developed into a cult classic. It's it's sort of a forgotten film in Denzel Washington's career. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh, which is funny because you'd think with as popular as he is, people might have gone back to reevaluate it. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know why it hasn't kind of been more discovered by now, but I do feel like it's one of those little hidden gems that you know those of us who've seen it can go yes that is a quality suspense thriller with a really neat supernatural twist and uh i like it a lot such a, such a good concept in yeah. it. and a great use of music as well with the rolling stones track yeah 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 exactly okay well i'm glad it made your list as well yeah uh my number six is enemy of the state uh directed by tony scott and starring uh, will smith and gene hackman yep will smith gets involved unintentionally in uh some some espionage kind of goings on and he's uh he's on the run Things go bad. He gets in touch with uh, Gene Hackman, who's sort of his character could be the same character he played in the conversation. Yep. Which I quite like that as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but it's a, it's a it's a good fun conspiracy thriller, uh, which has got a bit more fun than you'd normally expect with this. But I think mainly because of Will Smith and the way it's played. Right. But uh, it, I like the way it, it turns and thing. You're never quite sure what's going on, and well, you, you're sort of with the, you're following Will Smith's character all the way through, and you're, you're learning what's happening as well. And there's lots of you know. Who can he trust? And some great little scenes and uses of technology, which I quite like. And it's uh, Gene Hackman was was excellent in the film. Very good pick. I did not make my list, although I do like this film. I, I like it quite a bit, actually. It's a great. I like Tony Scott. It's a good actioner. Yeah, uh, just yeah. you know, just kind of got edged out, but a good pick. Now it's quite a few films in this for me as well. I got. That would have made another year's list, but right, uh, right. just got pushed out. So my number six is another tie, and it is between dueling films, and they are Armageddon and Deep Impact, two meteors are about to strike the earth films that came out within a couple months of each other back in 1998. And I really like both of these. I know I know it's easy to bag on Michael Bay, but I really liked Michael Bay's first few movies. Bad Boys, The Rock, and Armageddon are a lot of fun. Yes, there is that unfortunate animal cracker scene in Armageddon, but... Aside from that, it's still a really fun movie that just looks fantastic, and, and Bruce Willis is great in it, and um, I think it's a really fun, you know, just bigger-than-life action film back when Michael Bay was doing what he did best. And then Deep Impact is sort of the opposite of that. It's sort of the cerebral version. What would ha- what yeah. would the relationships be like? What would, you know, what would pe- how would people react if we knew there was a meteor coming out? I liked the sort of journalistic aspect of Taya Leone's character uncovering sort of by accident that this this meteor is heading for Earth, and I like the concept of people, you know, hiding underground and stuff like that. So um, I, I actually think Deep Impact might be the better movie, uh, but I enjoy them both. Yeah. You know, uh, on an intellectual level, I think it might be a better movie, but Armageddon is just so much fun. So um, I really like both of these films. I, I love disaster movies, as we know, so it's not a big surprise that they made my list, but um, they're both a lot of fun, and I, I couldn't leave either one of them off. Yeah. Didn't make my list. I enjoyed seeing them both. Yeah. But the, neither, neither film is one I'd like to seek out to watch. Yeah, yeah I can understand that. But but uh, but yeah, I think I think I enjoyed... Well, I think Deep, Deep Impact was the, the better movie out of the two. Right. Although... although Armageddon that was you know was more fun and had more more visual stuff to, to go exactly. With. Deep yeah. Impact is more emotionally yeah. satisfying, but yeah, yeah. Armageddon is more like 
popcorn fun, you know? Yeah, yeah. Good way of doing it. Yeah. Okay, uh, my number five is The Faculty, uh, directed by Robert Rodriguez and starring lots of people, including Elijah Wood and Josh Hartnett and George Dana Brewster. But it's all about some uh, kids in a school who find that the teachers start acting weird and then they realise it's been an alien invasion. And I just, I always like those kind of stories. Like, invasion of the body statues kind of thing, but a bit different. But it's uh, lots of fun. It's great seeing these students putting bits together, coming up with different ways of dealing with it, involving this... uh, this drug one of them makes and a great cast funny moments the teachers uh really good uh found Janssen again and uh yeah and john stewart in in one of his uh film roles uh lots of fun some really good creature effects as well when you see them i think lots of them were done uh practically practical effects uh but if you haven't seen it it's been a while it's 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 not quite as forgotten as fallen but i do feel it's sort of been forgotten right another good fun creature feature this is one of those ones I want to revisit. It did not make my list. I remember when it came yeah. out, I was a little underwhelmed by it. Yeah. But I think, again, this was the type, the time in my life where I just got super hyped up over every movie and then was inevitably disappointed in many of them. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I don't think I've seen it since then. So it's definitely one I want to revisit because I am a Robert Rodriguez fan and I do like this kind of movie. So I, I think it deserves another viewing. Yeah. All right. Well, my number five is a comedy based on a Saturday Night Live sketch. And it is A Night at the Roxbury, which is one of the most underrated comedies of the 90s. I love this movie. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen it. Um, my friends and I used to just watch this movie over and over and over again. It's uh, Chris Kattan and and Will Ferrell. I can still quote this movie with uh, with a select group of my friends to this day. Uh, I love this movie. It is really funny. What is love? Yeah, exactly. Baby, don't hurt. But man, I think it is the funniest movie, and I will never get tired of watching it. So um, it is it is definitely a favorite of mine. So that's my number five. An excellent choice. I'm glad it's on your list. It's uh, It was almost on my list a couple times because I really do like that, but it got, kept getting pushed down. But got a good pick. Okay, my number four is one which I think will be on your list at some point. It is Dark City. Yeah, very good choice. Directed by Alex Proyas, and it's it's just a great one. Great setup. A guy wakes up with no memory of who he is in this city where it seems to be constantly night, and then things get weirder from there. Yes. And it's just, it looks it looks amazing. Got a great cast. I love the story as well when you, you, you're finding out what's going on. Um, my one complaint with it is that every time I've seen it, the, I don't know what it is with the mix, the soundtrack is just a bit too loud. I remember seeing it at the cinema, and there were bits when they're talking, and there's just this, and you're going, I can't hear what they're saying. What's going on? Right. And I've, I've st- it's felt the same as well when I've watched it on the Blu-ray. Hmm. Interesting. But... Uh, yeah, it's but uh, no. I'd, apart from that, I, I think it's a great film. Very good pick. Well, my number four is a horror movie. It is Halloween H two O, featuring the return of the real Michael Myers uh, and Jamie Lee Curtis, of course. And uh, this is a movie that I I really have a, a a real soft spot for. I I am a huge fan of the Halloween franchise. Michael Myers is my favorite, you know, slasher movie horror icon. Uh, Halloween, the original by John Carpenter, is my favorite horror movie of all time. Yeah. And then after those two movies, well, Halloween 3 is an outlier because it's not about Michael Myers, but then there was like 4, 5, and 6, which were sort of basically like direct-to-DVD level, you know, pretty terrible. Uh, I mean, I still like them, but they're not great slasher films. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then H2O was sort of like they came back and brought it back to the theaters and – they they brought back Jamie Lee Curtis and it was it's a great film and it really captures the spirit of Halloween. What I like about it so much is that it has an extremely low body count, just like the original film. 
Um, you know, it's not just a, it's not a bloody film. It's just all about blood and gore, which had become kind of in vogue by the 90s. It's it's a, a real suspenseful Michael Myers, you know, slowly hunting a small group of people. Uh, and, and with Jamie Lee Curtis back for the first time, you know, in four films, it's it's just terrific. I really love it. I think it is the best Halloween movie outside of the, the original two. Um, and I, I just really, really, really enjoyed this film. So that's my number four. A good choice. I've only seen that one once. Oh, I love it. And it was sort of, uh, I think it was with a few friends and we'd already watched a couple of films and we'd been drinking. So by the time that came on, I was a bit drunk, didn't pay that much attention right. to it. And I need to see it again, to be honest. Yeah, next time you watch it, I think just watch it with kind of pick it up as like the, you know, the third film in the franchise after Halloween 2 and it's 20 years later. But I think if you watch it, you'll see that there's a lot of really good qualities to it. It's a it's a solid, yeah. well-done film. It's not just a cheap slasher flick. Okay, my number three is uh, one you've already mentioned. I had a feeling it would show up on your list as well. Yeah, I mean, I watched it recently and it's still, I mean, the opening scene is just, just great. The, I always like the character of Blade as well. And Wesley Snipes does great things. I mean, it was the first kind of Marvel movie. The whole vampire society and what they did with their familiars was great. Uh, Stephen Dorff was actually pretty good as well. Yeah. Obviously, some of the CGI was a bit dated, but on the whole, some great fight scenes, good character, good story. Yeah, I hope we see Blade again. Yeah. And I, yeah. I'd be quite quite happy seeing uh, uh, Wesley Snipes play him again. For sure. To be honest. For sure. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, my number three is The Wedding Singer, starring Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. Uh, one of Adam oh, Sandler's... Almost made my Oh, list, really? Yeah. 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 It's just yeah. it's one of Sandler's best flicks. I mean, all the 80s nods are great, but it's just a, it's a funny film. I love the concept of it. And another one of those movies that I can quote all day long because it's just it's really funny. It's really cute. It's really endearing. You know, Sandler is very likable and it. it's before he sort of got into his super curmudgeonly mode that he's been in for the past yeah. 10 years. He actually seemed to give a damn about making Yeah, it. you know, and Drew Barrymore is just at her best too. And it's just it's just such a funny movie and it's got some great songs and stuff in it. A terrific soundtrack. So um, I, I like it. I, don't, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who doesn't, who like actively dislikes The Wedding Singer. You know, it's like one of those yeah, feel good yeah. comedies. Yeah, it's one of the Adam Sandler films that it's. It's okay to like. Yeah, right, 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 right. And for quite some time, my ringtone was, Somebody kill me, please. Oh, I love that song. So good. First time I saw it, and that became one. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Steve Buscemi's character. Right, well, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Oh, good choice. I'm glad I made your list. Thank you. Okay, my number two is The Truman Show. Mm, good choice. Uh, directed by Peter Weir and starring Jim Carrey, who finds out he's actually living a lie. And he's the most popular reality TV star ever. I just love the whole concept and the way it was done and the way it was unveiled. And Jim Carrey being more dramatic, but still, you know, there's lots of humor in it. But as the story develops, it's just, it's just, it's such a big, a big story. And it's done so well. And yeah, I just thought everything about it was spot on. Real good film. Yeah, it is. It's a very good film. It didn't make my list, actually. It got edged out, but uh, I do like it very much. All right. Well, my number two is, uh, I'm, I'm concerned that it didn't make your list, actually, because I think I know what your number one is. But um, so we'll, we're going to see where this goes. My number two is Saving Private Ryan by Steven Spielberg, uh, of course, with a great cast that includes Matt Damon and Vin Diesel and Tom Hanks. And man, I, I love this movie so much, but it's fun. I do remember my first experience with Saving Private Ryan was, you know, at the time it came out, it was when Steven Spielberg was, was you know, and still is one of the biggest directing names in the world. But at this point, he was like on a string of hits that just, you know, a new Steven Spielberg movie meant everybody was going to the theaters. And I got a group of like eight or ten people, like four or five couples, and were like, hey, new Spielberg movie, it's a war film, it looks like a good action <laughs> flick, let's go see it. And everybody did. We got this huge group of people together and we watched it. And I, I remember just coming out of the movie theater and nobody said a word. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, we all just sort of like looked at each other and just sort of like walked off basically and like never 
did anything for the rest of the, like we all just sort of went home like it was such an affecting movie yeah yeah um but i've watched it a few times over the years and i love it more every time i see it uh, and not just because of the the action scenes which are amazing but tom hanks's performance is is phenomenal i i love the ending of the film you know, just it, it's one of those movies that brings me to tears every time. So many good characters and scenes and really just showed you what life was like for these people who weren't necessarily soldiers and got pulled into this world war and, and had to fight for their lives and fight for something bigger. And it's just I think it's an amazing movie, a movie and, and a real just a real cinematic achievement. No, it's a it's a great movie. It didn't make my list purely because I've only seen it the once. Uh, it's it's uh, you got to watch it again. I think you'll have a new appreciation for it. I know all I can all I can really remember. I know I enjoyed it, but all I can really remember is just like the opening scene, you know, on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what pieces. everyone. Yeah. I think that's what everyone tends to remember, but it's there's so much yeah. more going on. I need, I need to watch it again though, because I know it was a, I, I know it was a good, powerful film. So. Yeah, it really is. All right, well, let's hear it. I know what your number one is. I know it's one of those movies that I checked off saying uh, this is gonna be on <laughs> yeah. Phil's list. So get it over with. My number one though is uh, the Big Lebowski. Yeah, I knew it. Yeah, by the Coen brothers. Uh, number one, really? Yes, yes. I, I I knew it would be on your list, but it had to be number one. Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, God, it's no, oh, it's so Phil. It's, let, it's one let's of the best be honest films here. Of all time. It, it's many things. It is not brilliant. Well, it's one of my top ten films of the nineties. Uh, all right. It's one of my number one films of the nineties, <sighs> which we just discovered this evening. Audible sigh. There'll be lots of people out there who agree with me. I know most everybody will agree with you, and I just I will never understand that. I just I just love it because it's uh, it's like a proper Raymond Chandler detective story, uh, but a stone is doing it, and it's you know he's following his complex plot, and it not, nothing turns out the way it is. And it, the, the plot is entirely meaningless anyway because he got the wrong end of the stick. But Jeff Bridges is the dude. is just one of the best pieces of casting, one of the best characters out there. And, of course, we've got John Goodman, who's also brilliant in it. Uh, oh, who, please, who Mike, come on. Mike always kills with a bus. God, the worst character in the history of movies. Uh, we, we also uh, we went after the ending of it way back in episode four. Yeah, that's one of our first ones. Yeah. Um, and it was the start. It was the start of the bus start driver. The bus it driver, was, yeah, goes back yeah. that far, I realize now. That's right, yeah. But it's a great film. Lots of good quotes. Also, you know, the White Russian is a is a brilliant drink. Mm. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, I love the film. Mike doesn't, but that's my number one. I'm just glad that the, the film that launched my serial killing bus driver, which I used to take out characters I hate, was, was launched from a movie that really deserves it and a character. I would be disappointed if I realized that my bus driver came from a less annoying character than Walter Sobchak because he is the most annoying character in the that's history the, of the world. That's the point of him now. Uh, they succeed too well (laughs) Uh, anyway yes I am not a Big Lebowski fan as I have espoused many times on this show sorry to anybody who's just discovering that now who is a big fan but I really don't like that movie Uh, and the more people tell me how great it is the less I like it so (laughs) anyway my number one has appeared on your list and uh, it is Dark City Yes, I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. And, you know, and I'll be honest, I waffled back and forth between this and, and Saving Private Ryan. From Either one of them could have been my number one. But when I looked at movies that I have watched multiple times and movies that have sort of, like, penetrated my consciousness, like, Dark City comes to mind. Like, this is one of those movies where... I will watch it whenever I have a chance. And as it comes out in a new format, like Blu-ray or DVD, you know, at the time, I have to get it. Like, it's one of those films that's just in my sort of pantheon of... of Yeah, yeah. Just deep, deep favorites, you know. And it is... It's so trippy. I'm a big fan of Alex Proyas, the director who also directed The Crow, obviously one of my favorite movies. Um, I love the concept. I love the execution of it. I just... I love the whole storyline. Rufus Sewell, I'm a big fan of his, and I have been ever since I saw this movie. And it's one of those films that didn't do very well. It has a very big cult following. But if you haven't seen it, 
um, because there's a lot of people who haven't seen it. I urge you to track it down. It's really, really neat. Yeah, don't don't look into any more about it if you haven't seen it. Yeah, just just watch it and and don't know anything more about it than you have to. But it's it's a great film. That's my number one, and that is our list. An excellent list, I think, on both of us. But the dude abides. Yeah. So raise your white Russian while you're watching Dark City. Dude, I think, wasn't his name similar to mine, Mike Spring? Mike Spring is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. Ah, that makes it what better. What are you saying, Mike? Oh, nothing. Sorry, I was just thinking out loud. Anyway, that's going to do it for our that's, episode. Phil, why don't you tell people what we have strange. in store for them sw- next could week? Could have sworn we'd talk Okay, next week we're going to be doing our top 10 films of 1976, and we'll be going after the ending of Raise the Titanic, and Swingers. Yeah, I can, can't can wait to see how we tie those two films together. Yeah, there's yeah. a... <laughs> Raise the Titanic's a blast from the past. Yeah, yeah, kind of a fun random film that's been on TV a lot. I'm sure a lot of people maybe watched it yeah. when they were kids or whatever, yeah. but yeah. Uh, even if they haven't seen it, I think, you, you know, it's the kind of film, it's pretty broad, We can you can follow along with yeah. us. So. You'll never guess what it's about. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very misleading title for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that's going to wrap us up for this week. As always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. Mike Spring is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Although really, the, technically the only figure that actually belongs in that is... <laughs> Sorry, I got you while you're drinking, didn't I? I just took a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's so Very wrong. Good. So wrong. Very good. Uh, that won't be in the bloopers. No, I might be able to use the punchline, but not the setup. Yeah. And even then, yeah. I think I might not use the punchline. <laughs> uh, hold on. I'm going to sneeze, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I've got a bit of uh, hay fever. Oh, yeah. It's that time of year. Yeah. But on the plus side... Um, you did a good job of covering up so much. It sounded like instead of sneezing, you were blowing like a blow dart, like in the movies. (laughs) So if we ever need a blow dart sound effect, I I have one. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then who are you? Marco asks. They call me the... Polo. What? Polo. Polo. I, thanks. Sorry, sorry, right as I'm getting to the end, the biggest reveal of the whole thing. And you've got to hit me with Marco Polo. Yeah. Sorry. Oh. Good Lord, Phil. I'm keeping it real. Yeah, I see that. Real pain in the ass is what you're doing here. 85 episodes so far being pain in the ass, so I'm keeping on going. <laughs> That's right. Why well, change things now? The one and the only Bull Durham. Yes. Um, <laughs> sorry, I was just getting to the uh, Bull Durham on the screen. Thanks, Phil. Some pieces. That's called throwing it back to you. Can't hit it out of the park every episode. Ooh, baseball metaphor. Wasn't even, wasn't even trying. <laughs> That's a home run with that joke. <laughs> okay, then. Well, you've got... Okay. Well, we did... did well, have a drink. I'll see if I can say something funny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if that would work or not. <laughs> Almost choked. Trying to kill my co-host by accident. <sighs> Sorry, folks. Uh, I had to get a new co-host because I accidentally killed Phil from yeah, 3,000 well, miles How did you away. kill him? He was drinking some water, and I said I have to think of something funny. Right. Okay, then. Which, as we know from last week's outtakes, is not my specialty. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, was so funny that you listened to it. And when it came up, I was going, oh, I forgot I did that. Uh-huh. Well, what's he going to do? Yeah, nothing great. <laughs> <laughs>